Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is a story that is really disturbing. Lisa Freeman's father was murdered uh, with an axe in Oshawa, Ontario, when she was 21. This month, her father's killer will be paroled. And Miss Freeman declares, I've spoken with her and we've exchanged some emails, that the parole board is violating her right to challenge her father's killer's parole by not holding a public hearing. This, by the way, was raised in Parliament by Lisa Freeman's Conservative MP, who confronted uh, Public Safety Minister Bill Blair. Lisa Freeman joins us uh, on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Roy. Thank you for having me. Uh, good to have you with us. And Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor, Simon Fraser University professor on criminal law and terrorism, former senior policy advisor to a federal minister of public safety with us as well. Hey, Scott. Hi, Roy. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Scott. Lisa, can you just uh, begin, please, by telling us what happened, uh, what, what happened to your dad and under what circumstances, so we know more about the individual who's going to be paroled before the end of the month. Okay. Um, my dad was taking care of a rooming house here in Oshawa um, in 1991, and a drifter by the name of Terry Porter came back looking for his former girlfriend who had previously lived on the property. She was moved by the owner of the house for her own protection. Um, Terry Porter came back looking for her. She wasn't there. Um, he asked my dad where she was, and uh, he knew she, where she was, but he didn't say. So my dad was killed uh, protecting the location of this woman. And uh, Terry Porter was convicted of murder, right? Yes, first-degree murder um, in 1991. And uh, just a bit of background about him. He was on probation already for another crime when he killed my dad. And he has an extensive record, um, an attempt at murder charge for trying to kill his own father, who was a retired police officer from New Brunswick at the time, uh, multiple assault charges, Forcible, forcible confinement of a woman and her child. Just, uh, just a very dangerous man with an extensive record. And wh how do you find yourself where you are now, where you're saying, look, the parole board, and there will be people you know who will say, well, look, Terry Porter spent a lot of time in prison. Maybe he should be given a second chance. You know that. Right. Um, first of all, what do you say to that? And then secondly, how do you find yourself in the predicament you're in now where the parole board essentially is telling you, we don't want to hear from you? Right. Um, for the first part of your question about people who say, who may say that he's been incarcerated for long enough, um, he already had his chance when he was on probation for another crime. So my dad paid for, for that chance with his life already. And I really don't feel that anyone who's, um, who has killed an innocent person can be rehabilitated. And I really do think this has become a public safety issue as well because the full board, um, they told me that his chances to reoffend, they rate him as a three out of five. So um, that was the, some of the information I, I received from the parole board after day parole was granted in April of this year, which I could not attend the hearing due to COVID-19. Um, they removed all in-person hearings for victims of crime across the country. The currently, we'll go to Scott in just a second, but currently it's not a COVID issue that you cannot speak out against your father's killer being released, right? It has nothing to do with COVID. Nothing to do with COVID. Um, they are not holding a hearing. It's their de decision not to hold a hearing, but instead an in-office decision. Uh, sometime in the month of October 2020, 
So I don't even get to know the date of this decision of this big event in, in my in my life. Um, the possible potential full parole of my dad's killer, I don't even get to know the date of. And I asked them, why, um, why are you doing this? And they said, we have the authority to do so. And I do think it's probably the norm across the country that they, they are able to do this to people, but um, it certainly doesn't make it right. Scott? Um, yeah, first of all, let me just add a couple of things for context in uh, Roy's uh, description. Uh, I was also uh, the executive officer of the Canadian Police Association from 1992 to 1998, and one of the major issues that we became involved in was changing our laws so that victims had a voice at parole hearings, and we were able to get some uh, changes. People actually forget, but in the old days, no one was allowed to even attend a parole hearing. No one was allowed to speak at a parole hearing. And we managed to make changes. Uh, and, that, and from 1998 to uh, 2004, I was also, the Ontario government set up what was known as the Office of Victims of Crime, which was in effect the provincial uh, equivalent of the Federal Victims Ombudsman's Office. And we were the ones that had tried to get the federal government to create an equivalent federal office. And although that was done, there were severe defects in how that was done. And Lisa, you're absolutely correct that the in what the uh, the parole board is saying to you. In fact, uh, buried in the legislation is the fact, and it's actually not even in the bill; it's in the regulations, section 165 of the regulations under the Act, that if the individual is still on day parole and has successfully completed it, that means that the parole board can just ignore all of what is contained in the statutes and in the Victims' Bill of Rights in saying that victims should have a voice and just hold a what's known as a paper hearing. Um, and so that's what appears to be taking place. And, you know, you're 100% correct that it completely undermines and frustrates the intention of the system, including the Victims' Bill of Rights, which expressly says that victims should have a voice, a voice in these kinds of proceedings. But it's buried in law, and they can do it. And the bottom line is that this is something that's increasingly happened, and it shouldn't. Lisa, let me just um, let me just read from your email. Okay. Victims were banned from in-person hearings. This is parole board hearings. From the onset, offenders were able to participate in video conferencing at hearings, and it was five weeks before victims could participate live by using a phone. You write, my MP Colin Carey had Bill Blair on the hook in April in the House of Commons, and Blair, who's the public safety minister federally, said that victims were able to participate by video, that he implemented it. Is he telling the truth? No, it didn't happen. Uh, we're now in October. Uh, Canada's crime victims are still participating through the use of a phone, while offenders um, not only have video conferencing for in-person parole hearings, but they have every conceivable um, method of support back in prisons. Their families, their lawyers, their program support people, uh, clergy, everyone's in, except uh, people like me, victims of crime. We are still locked out of prisons. And uh, as I said, it's, that was July that all those other people were back in for vendor support. And here we are, middle of October almost, and families, people who are opposing parole are still locked out and locked into just using a telephone to deliver their most important words, which is an impact statement. And um, some victims have a strong need to participate in the process. I'm one of those people. And victims in crime have a wide range of needs, and the parole board should respect those needs, but it's not happening. And Scott, so Lisa really has been told by the parole board to butt out, and they have the right to do that. Um, 
I'm not sure I'd go so far as to say that they have the right to do that, although I think the system is flawed in uh, not being able to have accountability measures to uh, expose it and prevent it. Uh, uh, Lisa's doing a great job of exposing it. Can, can I just ask, Lisa, you're registered as with the, uh, the board as a victim? Yes, I am. Okay. And um, are you, have they told you whether you can even submit a written statement for the in-paper hearing? I have submitted a written statement, okay. um, which, again, for some people that may be enough, but yeah, for most victims of crime, that's not enough. They need no, to and be And you know present. what? We yeah. could easily change the law so that this power of having, uh, you know, uh, non-hearings um, would not apply to uh, defined offenses like, you know, homicides, mm -hmm. serious crime offenses, sexual offenses. If there's a registered victim, we could easily change the law to do that because it's supposed to be a balance. Can mm -hmm. I ask you one other question too, Lisa? Um, did this guy ever apply for the uh, early release after 15 years? No, no, he didn't. Okay. That of itself is a big red flag, okay, that tells you that this is somebody uh, who poses a, a risk. And there's societal implications uh, here too. Right. Voice for Victims that, uh, you know, so many of us fought so hard to actually get improves public safety because it makes sure that the right information is heard by the right people. Right. And, and to me, it speaks volumes that he's been incarcerated for almost 30 years. Yeah. If that doesn't speak to his suitability for release, I don't know what does. And if um, the, if the uh, uh, reoffending index is, uh, is as you uh, said that they told you, um, that's a significant factor that needs to be taken into account. And I got to tell you, there are mechanisms theoretically in the uh, Corrections and Conditional Release Act that the parole board chair with a snap of his, her fingers could actually suspend this parole. And uh, one of the biggest efficiencies, in my opinion, though, is that there's no real accountability mechanism. Um, as I mentioned, we had, when I was with the Ontario government, we had lobbied really hard to create a federal victim's ombudsman's office mm -hmm. and unfortunately when the harper government created it in 2006 it they didn't do it with a statutory mandate in other words there's no statutory authority whereas in ontario i had a statutory authority and also you know in the law there is a uh, correctional investigator who can investigate the actions of the government institution on behalf of criminals but we don't have an equivalent for victims Right. So, so let me ask you this. Let me ask. Let me just ask this question, Lisa. What's your understanding of what's going to happen before the end of October? Is your dad's killer going to be released? Going to be paroled? I have that feeling. Yes. But you don't know that. They haven't told you that. They haven't told me that. Okay. I, I'm I'm awaiting the decision um, for some time in October. That's all. I know. How do they communicate with you? Uh, by email. Well, maybe it would be helpful, and I may have suggested this to some friends. Maybe it would be helpful if the Conservatives uh, in Parliament uh, next week start asking Bill Blair uh, if he's aware of the circumstances of this and whether or not this is something he's going to direct that be looked into and whether or not he approves of you know, shutting the voice of, uh, of victims in a case like this or whether he's going to ask the uh, parole board chair to exercise their authority and to uh, change their, you know, this is an administrative decision, but to change that so that victims do actually have the voice. Right. Let's, let's, come back to, let's come back to Lisa. You, uh, you said your MP had, in fact, confronted Mr. Blair. Remind us of what happened. Multiple times through the spring and summer um, for banning victims of crime, myself, because I'm in his writing, 
but on a whole, Canada's crime victims from hearings. And in in the House, and there was a, there was a senator in Quebec, Pierre Boisbonneau, yes. as well, who participated on my behalf to try to get some sort of movement so they could either delay the hearing until it was able to include everyone, but they just weren't listening. They would not. And as I said, it took five weeks of public pressure for them to even let you participate by phone. I offered to find my own secure government location, and I did in the courthouse here in Durham Region, but they still wouldn't let me participate by video conference. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. And I think... They say that victims have an effective voice in this system. No, we do not. I have to look outside of the system to find that voice. You have to go. You have to go to media. You have to go to media so you can be heard. I I do, and that's the only way to do it. And not everybody has it within them to do it because this system is hurting people. They're re-traumatizing people who have already been through hell. They are adding to that burden that we already have to carry. And this has just been nothing short of torment, not okay. just for me, but multiple people across the country. Not we just are... me, it's coast to coast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.